Add my welcome to Dom. Uh, my name is Pete, and I'm the uh, pastor of our church. It's great to have you join us, especially if you're um, visiting. It's great to have a lot of visitors for this very special day. Now, um, show of hands if you filled in a census successfully recently. Did a census. Uh, how many of you actually had to do it after the census due date because of census fail? Quite a few of you. Now, um, you'll know that a few censuses ago, they've noticed that uh, when it comes to religion, quite a number of people put Jedi. Which is, you know, it warms my heart. It's not a real religion, but it warms my heart being a Star Wars fan. Um, and it got me thinking, I wonder if there are stranger religions than Jedi religion. So I had a Google, and I found one I think that's pretty much as strange as I've come across. This is a real religion. It's called the Cargo Cults, right? Uh, Jimmy might know about this, actually, because he's been to Vanuatu and lived there. But in the Pacific Islands, basically, since about the 19th century, and especially after World War II, emerged these religions called cargo cults. Now, why are they called cargo cults? Well, it's this. Um, especially during World War II, Japanese and allies would drop cargo, right, in, in the form of supplies from, from airplanes. And these material resources are things that the natives of these islands have never seen before. So you think about it as manufactured clothing or uh, medicine or canned food or weapons or tents and other goods. They would arrive in pretty vast quantities. Um, now, obviously, they were dropped for the soldiers, yeah? But the soldiers would often share it with the natives or barter it or sell it. And, and so the natives all of a sudden through this got heaps of stuff and they would watch it drop out of the sky. Then after the war... The drop stopped, but then a religion started, or religion started. See, they thought, well, if it's coming out of the sky because of these soldiers, and they would notice these soldiers would do certain things, and then planes would land or planes would drop. So they thought, well, what if we did these day-to-day -day rituals that the soldiers did? The heavens would open up and cargo would drop. So they would perform, um, you know, they would do parades, like ground drills, pretend they were soldiers. They would use um, salvage rifles, or they would make ones out of wood and march around with them. And, and put on uniforms that they made or more uniforms that they salvaged. Um, they would even get wood, carved headphones out of it and wore them while sitting in um, make, like their make-believe control towers, like landing planes. And they would um, find the old landing strips and they would uh, light fires and torches and signal the runways and lighthouses. And that would be their rituals, right? Hoping that the cargo would drop. Um, and I told you, this is real. One, one cult in Vanuatu... Um, worshipped, uh, I, I, don't th I don't think he's a real person, but it's a ma name they made up, American soldier called John Frum, right? Another worshipped one called Tom Navy, which is why I think they probably made it up. Tom Navy, John Frum, yeah. Um, anyway, one would have thought they would have chosen, you know, someone like Chuck Norris, but anyway. <laughs> Another colony, this is real, um, they worship, of all people, Prince Philip, as in the husband to Queen Elizabeth II. Yeah, they have a picture of him, and that was their cult. Now, you, you, you hear something like this, and it's really hard for us to relate to that, right? And maybe that's how you feel about the religion of the, of, of the time of Elijah, the Baal worship that we've been reading about in 1 Kings. Uh, if you haven't been with us, we started uh, looking at Elijah last week, and just a quick recap, it's around the 9th century BC or the 800s BC. Uh, God's people Israel had turned away from worshipping Him, the one living true God, to now be worshipping the gods of the Canaanites, that's the inhabitants of the land who were there before the Israel came. They've turned to those gods 
and particularly Baal and Asherah. You, you know, when Dom read it before, you might have uh, heard those two names being mentioned. Now, who was Elijah? Elijah was one of God's prophets, and we'll read in a moment. He's, you know, one of the very few left. But he came as God's mouthpiece to declare God's judgment to an unfaithful people. And we saw last week, his message had to do with the fact that God, the Lord, was the real king, not Ahab, who was the king of Israel, the human king of Israel at that time, who was responsible for leading the nation astray. Okay, that's pretty much what we're up to. Now, chapter 18 is one of this. We haven't read the whole chapter because I'm going to read it and we're going to go through it together. But it really is probably one of my favorite parts of the Old Testament. It is so exciting because we see here a big showdown. Right, between the lonely prophet of Yahweh, the Lord, versus you know, almost a thousand prophets of Baal and Asherah. Okay, this is a pretty significant showdown. And let me just warn you, I don't do this often, but today I'm gonna throw in quite a few boxing illustrations. So if you're not into boxing, you're just gonna have to bear with me, right? But if you are into boxing, maybe you will know what I'm talking about. Uh, but the point I was trying to make before with the whole uh, cargo cult is this remember, why what was the appeal? with Baal worship? Is it for us as foreign as, you know, worshiping Prince Philip? Why would anyone do that? This Baal guy, why was it so appealing? So let me get you, give you four reasons why worshiping Baal would have been very, very, very appealing for the people back then. Number one, it was law. Right? It was state enforced. When Ahab was king, became king and his evil wife Jezebel, they actually made it a law. We read earlier, Jezebel was hunting down true prophets. You basically had to worship or die. It was a little bit like, you know, ISIL controlled um, Iraq and Syria, right? Convert or die. Uh, number two, another reason was tradition. Tradition. Remember I said that the Canaanites, the people of Canaan, Canaan's the name of the land that they were in, right? The Canaanites were worshiping Baal for actually hundreds, perhaps even a thousand years before the people of Israel were there. So we've actually got archaeology that goes back hundreds of years before. They're both um, inscriptions. One's a tablet and one's a statue of Baal. So they could claim tradition. They could say, look, we're really going to worship the, 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 you know, the traditional gods of this land. So that was the other reason why it might have been really, uh, uh, really in- appealing. The third reason is, of course, prosperity. See, what kind of god was Baal? Well, Baal was a god of fertility, you might remember I said last week. So this is rain and and fruitfulness and their harvests and their grain and their oil and their wine. This was an agricultural society. So those things were very important. Um, Baal could revive the dead. Baal could heal the sick. Baal was the one who gave you children. So you see, prosperity. The people of the land had an itch that Baal could scratch. So that's why it was appealing to worship Baal. Now, the last reason, we probably don't understand as much, but um, this is something that was true of not only Baal worship, but a lot of ancient, even Greek and Roman religions or gods. The fourth reason was actually sex, believe it or not. Because worship of fertility gods in the ancient world involved ritualized sex with the shrine prostitutes who used to hang around the holy shrine. So, you know, you got sick of your marriage, a little bit bored, you could always use as an excuse, I'm going to go and worship. What that meant was you would go and sleep with a prostitute, okay? And it would be totally legit. And so there was this excuse, right, for, for basically people to, to have sex as a part of their worship. That was probably the fourth reason why. So I hope you see that worshiping Baal was not some strange religion 
tucked away in somewhere in the world that no one knew about. It's not even like Jedi worship or Jediism, which only appeals to 40-year-old males who live in mom's basement, right? <laughs> Had to have, yeah, anyway. Um, Baal offered the ancient version of the good life. And who doesn't want the good life, yeah? And it was very appealing. Now, of course, no one today worships Baal. No, anyone? No? Okay, don't, don't raise your hands. All right. Um, but you think about it, why do we have God's substitutes in our lives? You see, idols, if you've been at our church for a long time, you'll know that idols, as far as the Bible's concerned, and we often speak about this, has nothing to do with whether they're made out of stone or tablets or wood and you put them on a little mantle. No, idols are anything that's substitute for God. And most of the time in our modern world, they're not personal. So they're things like wealth or relationships or power or pleasure, or careers, or hobbies, or travel. I mean, you think about what, why we worship them. Why, do we, why would we substitute God for those, those idols? And isn't it because they offer what is the equivalent of our version of good life, yeah? I mean, why would you pursue your career at the expense of your family? It's because you think by going after my career and doing the sacrifices that cost you, It'll be worth it one day because your career will give you the happiness, the good life that you're aiming for. I don't know what it is for you. It may not be your career, but whatever it is, it's always the good life. So we're really not that different, are we? See, my hope today is that this exciting chapter of the Bible will just, won't just be a showdown between God, the real God, and Baal, because that'll be all very exciting and very nice to read about, but it won't change us. What I'm really hoping is that we will see this as ultimately a showdown between the real God and all idols, all false gods, all God substitutes, including the ones in our lives. All right, it's going to get exciting, so let me pray, and let's get into the passage. Father God, with all these uh, regulars as well as visitors here, um, people that even as I speak to, I don't know well, many, but you know them all. Whether they're still investigating and they're not yet Christian, whether they are Christian, you know what each person needs to hear. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would minister to each one in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, it's a little bit like a boxing match. Uh, so we're going to see it in three parts. It's going to be the preparation, the confrontation, and then the resolution. If you've got paper outlines, they're in the bulletins. If you've got Zach pages, follow on as I go through it. So firstly, the preparation. Um, the first 19 verses of the chapter that Dom read for us, that really is the lead up to the actual fight. Um, there we're introduced to a new character, a guy called Obadiah, and how he gets involved in basically setting up this showdown, this fight. Now, we actually don't have enough time to go into it because Obadiah, really, it's, it's he, like he just appears and then he disappears. I reckon he almost deserves a sermon on his own because he's a really, he's, he's not the upfront guy, right? He's just faithfully doing what he does, um, but he is so important for God's purposes and we should honor people like him. Um, so verse 3, I'll just quickly go through. Um, remember, he is um, Ahab. Ahab's the king. He's Ahab's palace administrator. So he's like the general manager of a company. Um, but he fears God. Somehow he's managed to survive, even though Jezebel's been hunting for people who worship God. And he risks his life. It's not just he's been, you know, disappearing and not being upfront about his... But he actually risks his life as Jezebel is putting to death all the prophets of God. He hides a hundred of them. A little bit like if you've read uh, The Hiding Place, World War II, Corrie ten Boom and her family, they're Dutch and they hide Jews. 
right? Most of her family end up dead because of what they do in hiding Jews in World War II. Um, he bumps into Elijah, and now he has to play the role of Don King. Yeah, no one watches boxing. Okay, Don King was the famous fight promoter for Muhammad Ali, okay, and other great boxers of that era. If you've ever seen um, pictures of him, he's got like crazy hair. He's a black guy. He's like, anyway, except Don King loved his job and he was the best fight promoter around. Um, poor Obadiah doesn't want to do it, but he has to do it. And he risks his own neck in order to set up this fight. All right, so again, there's lots we could say about Obadiah. I won't have time to go into it. But the main point I want to get at is that this is preparation for the showdown. Now, why is this showdown so important? Why was it so important that we have this final showdown? Because at the beginning of the chapter, you remember, God had said to Elijah, I'm going to bring rain. But before the rain comes, this must happen. Why? Well, three years has passed, as we've read, since Elijah delivered the word of the Lord that there was going to be drought. And so there's been three years of terrible, terrible drought. And remember last week we said how, 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 how that itself, that kind of judgment was poking fun at Baal. Because what kind of God was Baal? He was a God of rain. He was God of fertility. Right? So you could imagine that the Israelites, after three years of no rain, no fertility, no harvest, were probably regretting changing gods at this time. But that wasn't enough. You see, God wanted one more showdown to cement his supremacy. So this is a little bit like, here we go, another boxing illustration. The famous match called the Rumble in the Jungle between Muhammad Ali and George Foreman. Now, by the way, by this time, Ali had in three bouts, won two bouts against Joe Frazier, right? And so Ali had already been, basically, he was, he was already seen as pretty much going to be the greatest. He had beaten Joe Frazier two out of three bouts. But here's the thing. After he beat Frazier the second time, right, he didn't become the heavyweight champion of the world because Frazier had in the meantime lost to George Foreman. So George Foreman was the heavyweight champion of the world. And even though Ali... Right, had beaten Frazier, the former heavyweight champion, until Ali fought Foreman, there was still a little niggling doubt, wasn't there, of whether he was the greatest of all time. So that's why this fight was so important, one of the best fights ever. 1974 happened in Zaire in Africa. It was a 15-round match. Ali won by knockout in the eighth round and did cement himself as the greatest of all time. That's why the showdown was important. It's a little bit like Ali and Foreman. God wanted to knock Baal down once and for all. So verse 19, here's the setup. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel and we're ready for the fight. So, confrontation. Now, what I'm going to do is, um, if you have your Bibles in front of you or uh, Zach pages, I'm going to give you the option of not reading along with me as I read. Because sometimes it's actually better if you listen as I read it, because it's really quite a vivid and interesting passage. So, if you find it easier just to listen and imagine it, I'll try my best to read it as interestingly as possible. Try and picture it, because this is a great, great passage. All right, so here we go. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? 
If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I'll prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but don't light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. Baal, answer us. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought. Or busy. Or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed. And they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. It's meant to be interesting. And it's actually a little bit funny. We'll see in a moment. Now, we're going to see the resolution. So don't worry. We're not going to keep you hanging. But um, I want to show you that the whole setup here is trying to demonstrate some key things about the real God, the Lord, or Yahweh, versus Baal. So let me tell you three things that's in your outlines. The real God, firstly, is not confined by geography. This is important because in the ancient world, gods of these cultures were only gods in certain places, not everywhere. So Mount Carmel is actually really important. It wasn't just a random mountain because Carmel was a big, prominent, hilly range that goes for about 17 kilometers. Okay, so it's a pretty big mountain range. We have ancient Egyptian records from about a thousand years earlier that calls Carmel the Holy Head, which means it was probably a religious shrine from way back. Around the same time, Assyrian records actually call Carmel the Mountain of Baal. You see, Carmel was Baal's home court. If you play sport, you'll know how important home court advantage is. Our poor wallabies, that is not the little animals, but the uh, rugby union, Australian rugby union team. The wallabies have not won against New Zealand in New Zealand for, do you know how many years? 15 years. 2001 was the last time they beat New Zealand when New Zealand had home court advantage. But Elijah's saying, hey, you guys can have home court advantage. It doesn't matter to me. See, in this battle, it didn't matter that Baal had home court advantage because Yahweh, the Lord, is not confined by geography. But secondly, the real God is not manipulated by activity. All right, this is where the humor is heaviest. I mean, Elijah, he's having fun here, you know, fighting words, right? He's having a go at Baal. 
Because gods of those cultures weren't only confined to geography, they were also a lot like people. Right? You always know you probably have a made-up god when the god is just a bigger version of yourselves. Yeah? So gods back then were not omnipotent. Omnipotent means all-powerful. They were not. In fact, like most males today, those gods found it hard to multitask. Okay? So you see what Elijah was saying. He's making fun of him. Baal, maybe he's occupied. Maybe he's doing something else. In fact, um, when he says he might be busy, there's a little bit of a sly remark. It could mean, he could be meaning, and I think he did mean, that maybe Baal is on the toilet. Maybe Baal's just a little bit constipated. He's, he's, he's engaged in a number two. He's dropping the kids off at the pool. He's wrestling the bear. He's laying some cables. Anyway, I could go on. Um, I think it's supposed to be funny. It is supposed to be funny. You're supposed to laugh at this. Yeah, in the uh, Peter International Version, that's what it would say. Um, Or maybe Baal's gone on a journey and he's just not around. Actually, we have ancient records that say um, this story about how Baal has a sister. Apparently, Baal's sister comes to look at, uh, look, goes to Baal's house to look for Baal and Baal's out hunting. And so he's not there. You see, they weren't everywhere at one time. They, They weren't all powerful and they weren't... um, uh, omnipresent either, okay? So that, that he's making fun of Baal. And so no matter what the prophets of Baal do in their strange and a little bit disturbing liturgical frenzy, like cutting themselves with swords, you know, they're doing all this. They go from morning to noon and then from noon to the evening sacrifice. But verse 29, there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Now we'll see in a moment Elijah and what he does couldn't be more different. He doesn't do some crazy religious ritual. He doesn't have to cut himself with swords. He just stands and he prays. We'll see that. See, the real God is not manipulated by religious activity. Now, all the stuff that they're doing might seem a little bit foreign to us. But I want to say this is actually one place where actually there is a parallel. There's actually alive and well, because it is easy for us to think. And you may be worshiping Jesus, the real God, But you might be thinking and tempted to think that even the real God can be manipulated. Or, okay, that's too strong a word. Let's change that word. Accessed by certain things that you do, certain rituals. You see, how would you complete this sentence? God will surely work if we. How would you complete that? God will surely work if we did what? Or, God will surely bless me if I. How would you complete that sentence? God would surely bless me if I prayed more and read the Bible more and did my quiet times more regularly. If I did more church ministry. If we as a church used that evangelism or church growth strategy. If we got that pastor or that leader. If we used this or that worship music or style. There's a Christian um, satirical website called Babylon B. Have you guys discovered it? It's great. It's so funny. It makes fun of Christians, and we're allowed to make fun of ourselves, right? Um, as some of it says, and this all has to do with worship music. One of the headlines, Power of God Waits in Foyer Until Chorus of Holy Spirit. <laughs> this one, Correlation Found Between Conversions to Christ and Smooth Song Transitions. <laughs> and my favorite one, Holy Spirit Unable to Move Through Congregation as Fog Machine Breaks. Okay, it's a bit exaggerated, but, you know, isn't that so tempting to think? If we just had this formula, then surely God will show up. 
Now, these are all good things, maybe not the fog machine, because I'm allergic to them. But um, <laughs> the point is, as good as prayer, Bible reading, spiritual disciplines, they're all really good. Doing ministry, all those things are good. But please do not think that God can be manipulated. Or maybe a more subtle form of bargaining happens with God and us. Often when life isn't going well, when suffering comes, you've been there, I've been there. This is the thought process I have. Something bad happens. You have a really tough season. But you're like, yeah, God, I, I know your word. Good thing. You know that all things happen for the good of those who love you. So, and I can see how I've grown in this. I've learned my lesson. I've grown through the suffering. But now, God, that I've grown and learned and changed, why hasn't my situation changed? Why haven't you brought breakthrough? It was tough being single, yes. God, you've, you've shown me how I can be satisfied as a single godly person. But now I've learned that lesson, God. Where's my boyfriend? <laughs> do, you, do you see? I've, I've learned to be, to be satisfied in my situation with my unemployment. I've learned to live on less. I've learned to trust in you more. I've learned that, God, now. Can I have a job now? Do you see? Now, these are all good things, and you please pray for those things. But please don't think that even our growth guarantees that God has to act. You see, that's a, if I do this, God must do that. That is not that different from what the prophets of Baal are doing. Our God, the true God, does not get manipulated by even the most zealous, sincere religious activities. And finally, the real God has no limits to power. So let me keep reading. Listen as I read. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two seers of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water, and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down the altar and even filled the trenches. Now, it doesn't take a genius. They weren't scientifically minded people, but even they would know fire and water generally don't go together, right? Elijah seems to be severely sabotaging his chances of winning this bout. It's like him going into the boxing ring and saying, I'm going to do it with my hands tied behind my back, right? That's a bit like that. But you see, this is all set up again to show you just how much greater the real God is. There is no limits to his power. So I come to my last point, resolution, and let's hear the rest of this exciting account. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God. And that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice 
the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. It's the end of the story. Let me point out three things we learned from this about the real God. Again, three things. Number one, a God of promise. See, remember, the real God is not manipulated by fancy rituals or even by your zeal and your earnestness, right? Just because you're sincere doesn't mean that God must listen. So what does He respond to? Because that's the question, right? What does He respond to? Well, this one tells us. What does God respond to? His covenant. His promises. You see, Elijah appeals to God not based on how worthy the people are, even how religious and great he is as the prophet. He knows that God can only be moved not by something in us, but by something in him. He appeals to God's faithfulness to his word. So you see it there symbolically. Verse 31, he repairs the altar, but he does it with 12 stones. Why 12? That's the number of the tribes of Israel. He's saying, God, remember your people, the people you formed, the people you made your covenant partners, the people you promised to. We come only on the basis of your good promises. And then in verse 36, remember his prayer. He addresses God as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Israel, i.e. the God of the covenants. The God who never goes back on His Word. He's saying, God, remember that. Your Word. And you see, that doesn't change when it comes to God's greatest salvation, does it? See, why did God give you His one and only Son? John 3, 16. So that anyone who believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Why did He do that? Why would He sacrifice His Son for you? I'll tell you why not. It's not because you or I are worthy. It's not because He foresaw in us this wonderful religious zeal or some activity that we will perform or some greatness that we will accomplish. It's nothing in us. He gave us His one and only Son because Jesus stands as the fulfillment of all of those promises. That's why there's Old and New Testaments. Jesus comes as a culmination, as a fulfillment of all of the promises that go way back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and so on. Do you see? God is true to His Word. But secondly, we also see that God is a God of grace. You need to know when the fire falls from heaven and completely consumes the sacrifice on the altar and everything else pretty much with it, something really important happened, and it's not just because it was like really cool fireworks, okay? I mean, the pyrotechnics are cool, but let me tell you what the significance was. You see, in the Old Testament, when fire comes from heaven and consumes an offering on an altar, it only happens three other times. Only three other times in the whole Bible. The first time was in Leviticus. We've just looked at Leviticus this year, right? As God set up around in the desert the makeshift temple called the Tent of Meeting or the Tabernacle, and He gave them instructions on offerings and priesthood, right? At one of the offerings, fire comes from heaven and consumes the burnt offering. That's the first time. Two other times happens in the book of 1 Chronicles. And both have to do with the new site of the temple. One before, one after. Put it together. You see that every time fire from heaven comes, 
It's a confirmation that God was accepting the people's sacrifice. And it also happens to confirm that God was going to dwell with his people at the very place he promised to dwell with them. Whether it was the tabernacle in the desert or the temple in Jerusalem. See, God is saying every time fire comes down from heaven, he's saying to his people, I am pleased to be with you. I am satisfied that even though you're sinful, that won't stand in the way of me being with you because this animal sacrifice has died in your place. Now you bring that meaning to 1 Kings and you see what an act of grace this is. Remember, this whole nation had turned their back on God to worship Baal. It really is like adultery. That's how the Old Testament puts it. When God's people turn away from worshiping Him to worship other gods, it's adultery. It's betrayal. It's taking what is exclusive, like between a husband and a wife and having the husband commit adultery or have the wife commit adultery. It's breaking faith with a covenant, a marriage promise. That's how hurtful and betrayal it would have been to God. But you see, God is saying here, even though you've done this, you have a way back to me. You have a way where your sins can be wiped out, no matter what you've done, even though you've betrayed me. There is a way back for me to be with you, to be your God and dwell among you again. He was willing to do that. And that way, he shows in Elijah, in 1 Kings, is through an acceptable act of worship, which is the sacrifice of an animal who dies in your place on the altar, just like we saw in Leviticus. It's the whole setup is grace. When God answers with fire from heaven, is He saying, I accept. You and I have this way too, by the way, a greater way. You see, the message of the Bible is, for those of us living on this side, is no matter who you are and no matter what you've done, especially if you're here and you're still not yet a Christian, God is saying to you, no matter who you are and what you've done, no matter what regrets you've had, no matter how dirty you feel, how unworthy you feel, you can have all of your sins wiped clean. You can have God be your God and dwell in your heart and you one day will be able to share an eternity with Him. Because God provided a Savior, Jesus, who was also the perfect sacrifice. No more animals. His Son. You see, no amount of religion or zeal or trips to the confessional booth or doing good deeds, none of that can bring God's forgiveness and God's favor. And Only Jesus can. And He's provided that for all of you. Last of all, the real God is a God who demands allegiance. Do you see it there? The last verse is a little bit jarring, isn't it? You know, He wins about and then He kills the enemies. Um, 450 Baals, uh, prophets of Baal are slaughtered. Now, for, for us modern minds, it's like, it should have just ended in, in verse 39, right? It's a bit gruesome. Why did it have to go this way? Now, I don't have time to give a full uh, set of reasons why that might be there, except to just say three quick things. Firstly, and probably quite important, most importantly, um, this is not how we would apply the Bible today, okay? <laughs> right? So we don't go killing people who are of other religions. That is not what we're supposed to do, and it's not what Jesus says we are to do. Right, this was Israel at that time. Secondly, 
helps to remember this was really, I mean, I've been using boxing matches illustrations, but boxing matches is not the same as a war, okay? But this really was a war, right? In a war, for example, as they retake Mosul, hopefully, um, as ISIL make that last stand and last defense and they, they do not surrender, you know what? They're probably going to be captured or killed, all right? In a war, this is what happens to enemies who don't change their ways. And the third thing is, you, if you think about Baal worship and how successful it was in changing the whole nation to worship Baal, it really was growing like cancer. And cancer is probably a good illustration because you don't treat cancer by keeping a few nice tumors around, right? You've got to cut it out. And the priests and the prophets of Baals were the source of that cancer. But the big point I'm trying to make here is that all of this comes in the context of allegiance, right? Where is your allegiance? Remember, even in the setup, in verse 21, Elijah asks the people, how long will you waver? Literally, how long will you limp between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. If Baal is God, follow Him. And the key word is there is follow. You see, when the real God shows up, it is not for us to say, oh, that's nice. Yeah, the God of the Bible, He does make more sense than my former agnosticism or atheism. I can see good reasons to believe in God. Yeah, maybe Jesus even has advantages on other religions. That's really nice. Yeah, I think I, I, think I like that. But then you just get on with your life. It doesn't work like that, right? If the Lord is God, Elijah says, you've got to follow Him. If Jesus is who He says He is, and you've come to that conclusion, there's only one thing to do, and that is follow Him. Do You see, God is not someone you keep around only when it's convenient for you. If he's real, then he demands it all, all of your worship, all of your lives, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now, if you're a Christian, I know you know this, but how easy it is, isn't it? As I said, right at the beginning, in the pursuit of our version of the good life, how easy it is to let other substitute gods take the place of the true and living God. And have you done that? Have you sidelined Jesus? Have you put Jesus in that compartment in your life, tucked away, out of the way? Only pray to Him and access Him when you really need Him. I've got exams coming up. Stressful time at work. Please, Jesus, help me. Oh, thanks for helping me now. Back you go. Or do you put fences around your life, areas of your life that can't be touched? Jesus, you're welcome there, but just... Don't go there. See, friends, God is no plaything. He is loving. He is gracious, as we've seen. But He is also a consuming fire. And believe me, if this chapter shows us anything, it's this. God's substitutes, Baals, will fail. They will be shown up, each one, as the frauds that they really are. You put whatever your God substitute is at the center of your life. And even now, just for an exercise, you put it right at the center of your life. And you imagine pursuing that God for the rest of your life, sacrificing all else to make that most important. How do you think it's going to go for you? I don't care what that God is for you. At some point, they will fail. Whether it's boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, 
career, comfort, house, car, money, hobbies, retirement, pleasure. It'll all crumble. It'll all fail. Chances are it'll fail while you're living. But that's not the worst of it because the Bible says when you face the real God in judgment, you're not going to be able to say, oh God, yeah, look, my house was just that much more important. My career, gosh, I really, I, I really nearly made partner, you know. I'm sorry I kind of sidelined you, but it was, it was you know, KPMG. <laughs> How do you give an account to the real God on Judgment Day? See, don't buy the lie. The real God, the real Lord, the real Master is Jesus, and He died for you. He gave it all for you, he, and He's raised in glory. He's seated in heaven. He is your Lord, and He is coming back to judge. So today, I urge you, give Him your allegiance. Today, say with the people of Israel at the end of the story, I have no other gods. The Lord, the Lord Jesus, He is God. And I will follow Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, You are God. And because You are, and not a God who stands over us to condemn us, to judge us. You're the God who came and became one of us to die for us. And you invite us into a life with you as Lord, a more wonderful life than any of our substitutes could ever offer. Greater satisfaction, greater joy, greater meaning, greater purpose, not just for now, but for all eternity. We're sorry for putting others first. We're sorry for sidelining you. Please forgive us and help us decide afresh with your power to put you first because you are our God.